Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer history in the media. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about two depictions of the Stonewall Riots, the 2015 Roland Emmerich film Stonewall, and the 2016 Drunk History segment presented by Crystal West. The content warnings for this episode are as follows. Homophobia, transphobia, police violence, sex work and allusions to sex trafficking, and racism. Before we start talking about these two pieces of media, it's important to talk about the history behind Stonewall and do a brief overview of what actually happened in the Stonewall riots. Obviously, we already recently published an entire episode on the Stonewall riots, and we would highly recommend that you go and listen to that episode before listening to this one. But if you don't want to, then Alice is going to give a brief rundown. This is going to be very, very brief, and I'm going to focus mostly on the question of who instigated the Stonewall because that's something that is depicted very differently in the two pieces of media we're going to be discussing today. But to talk about Stonewall first, Stonewall was a mafia-run underground gay bar in New York in the late 1960s. The patrons of Stonewall were a very diverse mix of people across race and class. There is debate about specific ratios of who went to Stonewall, but we can at least say that it was diverse across race and class. Most patrons were assigned male at birth, so there were some cis women who went to Stonewall, but not many compared to people assigned male at birth. In particular, street queens were a dominant presence at Stonewall. So street queens are homeless queer teens, often from racial minorities, who were also almost all assigned male at birth, but many of whom used female names or presented feminine in some way. And some of these street queens were trans women, but not all, some were not. Regarding the Stonewall riots themselves, early in the morning on Saturday the 28th of June, Stonewall was raided by police, which was a very common occurrence for gay bars. Stonewall was an illegal bar operating without a license. Usually these raids were over pretty quickly. Unusually, however, that night the patrons of Stonewall fought back violently and they continued to riot on subsequent nights. These riots both influenced and were influenced by a shift in the gay rights movement at the time, away from being focused on downplaying queer difference and on on proving respectability of queer or particularly gay people in order to earn a place in society and moving towards being more open about queerness and towards fighting by whatever means necessary for queer rights. So there's a lot of debate about what incident in particular sparked the violence at Stonewall that night and it is worth noting that this was a very large crowd, probably around a thousand people. It's hard to put an exact number on something like that and so it's likely that there were several inciting incidents throughout the crowd and not just one incident that started the riot. Eyewitness accounts most commonly credit a butch lesbian fighting back against police as a catalyst for violence. In 2008, African-American drag king Stormy Delavier, who had previously denied being this lesbian, identified herself as this butch lesbian. There are a few minor discrepancies between Stormy's account of her actions that night and other eyewitness accounts of this lesbian's actions, but broadly speaking, the accounts do match and it is possible that Stormy is the butch lesbian who is identified in eyewitness accounts. Other catalysts mentioned in eyewitness accounts include a drag queen, possibly 17-year-old Tammy Novak, and also a Puerto Rican gay man, Ray Castro. But what about Danny? <laughs> <laughs> what about Danny, Alice? I don't know. I think that history has repressed those accounts. So two more people often credited with starting the riots are drag queen Marsha P. Johnson and street queen Sylvia Rivera. Regarding Marsha, eyewitnesses do place Marsha at the riots. 
she was definitely there and definitely involved in the fighting. There's no eyewitness accounts of her instigating the riots. And Marta herself says that she arrived at Stonewall when, quote, the place was already on fire, the riots had already started. As for Sylvia Rivera, she herself says, I've been given credit for throwing the first Molotov cocktail by many historians, but I always like to correct it. I threw the second one. I did not throw the first one. Marsha, however, apparently has said that Sylvia was passed out on a park bench after taking heroin when the riots started and that Marsha woke her up after the riots began. I'm not aware of any eyewitness accounts that place Sylvia at that first night of rioting at Stonewall. Regardless of Marsha and Sylvia's specific roles, I do want to mention that many eyewitnesses do single out street queens as the group which fought the most fiercely at Stonewall and that they definitely did play an important role in the riots. So now we're going to do a brief overview of the two pieces of media that we're going to be talking about. The first is the 2015 film Stonewall, directed by Roland Emmerich. This film is a heavily fictionalized account of the Stonewall riots. (laughs) Sure be. That mixes historical characters with newly created fictional characters in order to weave a more cohesive narrative, I guess, (laughs) was the intention Maybe so. (laughs) And yet. (laughs) Whether or not they succeeded, we will talk about later. Uh Uh-huh. The film centers on a fictional character, Danny Winters, who's a gay, white teenage boy from Indiana, and he flees his family after an incident involving him being caught having sex with another young man and then being forced out, and then he goes to New York. Upon reaching New York, Danny is befriended by a group of young queer people who are living in Greenwich Village in and around Christopher Street, which is obviously the site of the Stonewall riots. Over the course of the film, Danny encounters police violence and brutality towards queer people, as well as the kind of lives that are led by a lot of the street queens and street kids in particular. In particular, Danny forms a close relationship with the character Ray, who is based on Ray Castro. (laughs) Based on an amalgamation of Ray Castro and Sylvia Rivera, ostensibly, but I have a lot to say about that. The other part of the queer community in New York that Danny encounters is the Madison Society, as represented mostly by the character of Trevor, who, whilst we could not pick out a particular historical figure who is based on, seems to be representing an amalgam of several prominent figures within the Madison Society at the time. The film includes several subplots about Danny trying to get admitted to Columbia University, the kind of criminal conspiracies that were going on surrounding the Stonewall Inn, which have some basis in the actual history. Solid basis in actual history, actually. Which center around the historical person, but also somewhat fictionalized character of Ed Murphy, who runs the Stonewall Inn as depicted in the film. The riots as depicted in the film are influenced by the death of actress Judy Garland earlier in that day. Judy Garland is mentioned a few times in the film as a gay icon. There is then a police raid featuring pretty much a spot-on cast of police officers. There are two women, as there were Mm -hmm. in the actual events. In particular, Officer Seymour Pine, who led the raid that began the riots. Then comes what has proven to be probably the most controversial moment in the film. After several scenes of police violence and of the crowd generally becoming more and more restless, a brick is 
handed to the main character, Danny, by a queer person of colour, and then Danny proceeds to throw the brick that incites the riots and turns around and yells gay rights, and then there is, after that point, a reasonable recreation of the events, particularly the dancing line. Yeah. I mean, it certainly refers to things that happened. I don't know if I felt like it was a reasonable creation of events after that. (laughs) That is definitely reasonable. But yeah, certainly from that point on, the riots happen, and then the film ends by refocusing in on Danny and his reunification with part of his family and admission to college, as well as briefly mentioning the subsequent formation of the modern gay rights movement that came out of Stonewall. There's a lot going on in this film that I didn't mention there, but we have limited time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It'll probably be a little bit quicker to summarise the Drunk History segment because we have very cruelly chosen to pit a seven-minute-long segment against a, like, two-hour film. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of you who don't know, the conceit of Drunk History is that some person, generally a comedian, will recount an event in history to the host, I guess, of the show, Derek Waters. They will be absolutely plastered, and therefore, obviously, they will be comedically bad at telling the events of the story. This will be intercut with a sort of faux documentary like depiction of a story by actors who have to like lip sync the narrator's drunk fumbling for words. It's pretty funny. (laughs) I'm a fan. As we mentioned at the top of the podcast, the comedian Crystal West tells the story of the Stonewall Riots in this segment. Crystal focuses it very much around Marsha as the protagonist of her version of the Stonewall Riots, starting off by giving a bit of a biography into Marsha's life and what it was like for trans people in New York at the time before going into the Stonewall Riots, essentially giving the bridge narrative that people came to this bar, the police raided a lot, people got mad, Marsha went off, and then Marsha throws a shot glass at the mirror, famously the shot glass heard around the world that never existed, and... (laughs) (laughs) And the Stonewall riots start and it ends, I guess, much the same way that the Stonewall movie does by kind of concluding that. And then the modern gay rights movement started. Whereas the Stonewall movie ends with the first Pride, which was on the first anniversary of Stonewall. The Drunk, Drunk History has no time for that. Drunk History has no time for that. And Drunk History ends with the foundation of Star, which was the street transvestite action revolutionaries, which was a group founded by Marsha and Sylvia to support homeless trans youth. Mm. So those are two things that did come out of Stonewall, but they've both chosen to focus on different aspects of what came out of Stonewall. True. Okay, so before we go on to discuss our opinions on the movie, which I'm sure will come up immediately anyway, (laughs) um, we're just going to talk about historical accuracy for a minute. Let's first address the protagonist in the room, Danny Winters. So, (laughs) Danny Winters is not a real man. Danny Winters never existed. With apologies to any actual Danny Winters that do exist in the world, but... (laughs) As far as we're aware, you weren't at the Stonewall Riots. Wouldn't it be wild if there was a Danny Winters at the Stonewall Riots, but just, like, not, you know... Just some dude. Just, like, some guy who just, like, walked past and was like, oh, hey, and now he's like, oh, my gosh. They know. (laughs) It's me. (laughs) So, yeah, Danny Winters is not a real person. That being said, many aspects of Danny's story are based off general or specific experiences that whites as gay men had at the time. So obviously being driven away from his family home due to homophobia and being outed. I don't need to tell you that happened all the time in the 60s. That will come as no surprise to anyone. When he arrives in New York and he has this scene in a diner where he's approached by an older queer man who is pretty sleazy and is kind of like, hey, I've got a place to stay. And Danny is visibly uncomfortable. 
and rescued by Ray, essentially. That scene is lifted from the life of Tommy Lanigan Schmidt, who moved from New Jersey to New York, and that older queer man known in the film as Queen Tui was called Sister Tui and is a real person. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of things like that, experiences Danny has, which are based off the real experiences of men like Danny at the time. Danny may be fake, but Danny's story is not actually fake. So I think we can say that something like Danny's interaction in the diner, like, that did happen and so forth. But I think that, like, and this is getting into their decision to have this protagonist who's not only a cis white gay man, but who was, like, a cis white gay man who's newly arrived in New York and is, like, naive and is, like, an outsider and therefore mm. an audience surrogate into this scene. And the way that that sort of casts a lot of the things we see in this neighborhood. So not only, like, he gets hit on by the sleazy character in a bar, but, like, the behavior and lives of the street queens and so forth. We can kind of assess them by one rubric by saying, yeah, that stuff technically happened. Mm. But I think we also need to look at, like, in what light the film presents those things and, you know, if it treats them respectfully and yeah. so forth. Mm-hmm. I obviously know a lot less about this time and these specific events than you, Alice, because mm-hmm. you're the one who did the research for our Stonewall episode. And I guess I represent, like, most of the people who see this movie mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. So not knowing whether a lot of these things were strictly accurate, I felt really weird about mm. a lot of the experiences Danny has when he shows up in New York, where he's, like, this, like, clean-cut, you know, example of like perfect white blonde young american masculinity and immediately all these like feminine sleazy weirdos Mm. you know he's like constantly receiving unwanted attention that is trying to brush off and so forth yeah and you know okay that that happened obviously and that's not necessarily surprising but i guess i question the ways in which the film decided to include that Mm -hmm. you know i also feel like that about like the street queens like i'm sure that they did steal things but because we're coming at that from this outsider perspective of danny who is not yet like embroiled in that life and Mm -hmm. is yelling robbing people and doing sex work to survive we don't get that from their perspective as like no this is something that's justifiable we need to survive we get it from this outsider perspective you know when they rob things it cuts to danny's reaction of him being like oh so you just take whatever you want you think that's okay and the film doesn't really take the time to contextualize those things and to express that like yeah in this setting they are okay Mm, mm. yeah i did find and i was thinking of this in a later scene where danny is in the Stonewall Inn and Ray is asking him to dance and Danny is saying, no, 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 I won't dance. Because that mirrored really accurately mm. the experience of a real man named Danny, coincidentally. Oh, my God. <laughs> a real white gay man named Danny, Danny Garvin, who went to Stonewall mm. and he remembers the guy he was with asking him to dance and him saying, no, I don't dance, I don't dance with men, I don't want to be seen, what if someone knows I'm gay? And on the one hand, you are showing Danny's discomfort with being openly gay or openly queer. But on the other hand, there's a very fine line between showing Danny's discomfort with being openly gay in a time when that could lead to all sorts of horrific consequences and showing Danny being uncomfortable with the queerness and specifically like femininity and things like that of his friends that doesn't match with his own kind of more traditionally masculine gay identity. And I don't think the film fell on the right side of that line. Yeah, I think, Eli, you make a really good point about the discomfort that I felt as well in terms of the way the street queens in particular are depicted. And I think what that comes down to, to me, is that 
it makes it seem like those experiences were pretty much the totality of what life was like for these people in that, you know, pretty much all of them are seen to engage in sex work, all of them engage with crime, and that's largely every scene that we see them in. Mm. They're either engaging in sex work, they're engaging in crime, they're engaging in both. You know, we don't get to see a lot of scenes and i guess partially this is because it's a dramatized film and you want to present scenes that are dramatic but even in scenes where there's something else dramatic happening in the background there's still usually like someone casually engaging in sex work Mm. and particularly given that the character of ray is ostensibly partially based on raymond castro who as far as i'm aware from what i was reading didn't engage in sex work ray castro wasn't a street queen yeah like wasn't a street queen like full stop and then also didn't engage in sex work i feel like it was a very one-dimensional picture of what life was like yeah Mm. in a way those events may have happened and you know may have been reasonably common but they weren't everything that was going on for this community. Mm. And I think that's where it becomes a little bit about what they chose to not include as opposed to what they chose to include. What they chose to include was all stuff that did happen to a greater or lesser degree. But I feel like it does present a kind of incomplete picture of what life was like for those communities. That was at least the impression that I got watching it, and particularly after the Stonewall episode that we did and how you presented it. Mm -hmm. I think especially given that, like, you mentioned in your recap of the movie that Danny moves to New York and becomes close with this group of people and I had a moment where I was like does he oh I guess that is what the film is trying to portray Mm. because I don't feel like the movie even takes the time to really show that presumably Danny is meeting a group of people who are very close and who really rely on each other as found family Mm. Um, and that presumably Danny is meant to become a part of that found family we have like one scene where he like trash talks someone and they're like oh you've learned to talk like us now and presumably like that's meant to signify that he is now one of them but we don't really get any scenes that are just like and then they bonded or anything like that and another effect of that is we don't really get a lot of times Well, like, yeah, as you say, they're just sort of existing as people who get to individually have personalities. Like, it's it's this weird thing where they decided to make up all of these fictional characters. Most of the street queens in this film are real. While Ray, who we will talk about, broadly speaking, the street queens are based on real people. So Marsha P. Johnson most obviously is a real person who we know a lot about. Annie, the one with the red hair, Mm -hmm. is real. The one in the suit and tie, who I think is called Paul in the movie, there really was a street queen who dressed like that. I've never heard him mentioned by name, but a lot of people specifically remember the way that he always wore a suit and tie, despite being, you know, a homeless kid on the street Mm -hmm. and so on. Most of these are real people and they have real people's names or variations on those names. So Queen Kong, for example, in the movie, who is the one who hands the brick to Danny that he throws into Stonewall to start the riots, is Congo woman in real life. But it's obviously the same person. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting then that the movie chooses not to acknowledge that acknowledge that when at the end it is going through and does a bit of a where are they now segment talking about the historical figures who had appeared in the film. Mm Part of the reason, perhaps, that they're not in this Where Are They Now segment at the end of the movie is we don't know. A lot of these people, we don't know their surnames. We don't know what happened to them. They probably died pretty young because that was the reality of life for street queens. Mm-hmm. It's just super bizarre if, if that's the case to then also have Danny be here, who, like, sure might be an amalgam of, like, experiences or real mm. people, but who, like, is a fictional character. I do wonder what the 
intent is for the like mainstream movie going press so obviously i'm gonna like research a podcast episode about stonewall <laughs> before i'm going into this movie is if they're meant to assume that like the experiences that are portrayed are real but the people aren't or if they're meant to be able to recognize specific figures or if they're meant to somehow understand that Danny is fictional but everything else in this film is real because mm. I don't feel like that ever is in mm. any way clear mm. and that feels super bizarre to me. Yeah, yeah. Ray, however, is not real and that I also think is an interesting decision to have a bunch of real background characters and Marshall P. Johnson as a real character but have Ray as this unreal character who interviews claim is based on an amalgamation of Ray Castro, who I mentioned before, and Sylvia Rivera. So as far as I'm aware, and I can't say 100% about all the experiences of Ray Castro's life because I have to glean them from kind of interviews and stuff like that, Ray Castro was not a street queen. He was 27 years old at the time of the Stonewall riots, so that's much older than the street queens who are depicted. He did say in an interview that I watched with him, quote, I was never afraid of the cops in the street because I was not an obvious person. I was not flaunting my homosexuality in front of anybody. And when you look at pictures of Ray Castro, he's a pretty conventionally masculine looking person in terms of his dress. He wasn't living on the street doing sex work, stealing all those kind of things to live. I think he was studying at this time, but I'm not 100% sure. But the point I'm trying to make is that Ray Castro has nothing in common with Ray in this film except being a Latinx person called Ray. Like that's it. That's all they share. And I guess being queer. That's all they share. Whereas Sylvia Rivera functionally is Ray. That character is Sylvia Rivera. They have many broad things in common in terms of their life at the time and also many specific details in common. So, like, there's a scene in the movie where Ray talks to Danny about his family and he mentions a mother and a father who are not present in his life. He mentions a grandmother and he mentions a sister in foster care. That is the family that Sylvia Rivera had. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. (laughs) What are you doing, movie? Yeah. Why don't you want Sylvia in this movie? Yeah, like when Danny is speaking to Bob Kohler, I believe, who's the older activist who kind of acts as a father figure to the street queen. Mm-hmm. He's got that dumb little dog. <laughs> <laughs> no, I loved that dog. Magoo. Although its eyes were so big and they scared Jason and I. Yeah, yep. it's, it's either like blue and huge. It's eyes, we, like, I fully believe that they had a small CGI budget that they blew entirely on that dog's eyes for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. dog, like, it looked like it had glass eyes. Like, I remain convinced that that is the case, Maybe to be honest. Um, but yeah, there's a scene where Danny's talking to, and I think it's Bob Kohler from memory, and Bob is saying, oh, you know, Ray's been living on the streets, hustling, doing sex work since he was 12. That's the age when Sylvia Rivera started living on the streets and doing sex work. Yeah, there are all these specific small details that show you that if you know who Sylvia Rivera is, that Ray is Sylvia Rivera, yet they've chosen to claim that he's not. What's up with that? When you say they've chosen to claim that he's not, what do you mean? Do you mean mean, in the movie or do you mean when they talk about the movie? Because you said that they are like, this is an amalgam of Ray and Sylvia. I guess I mean both. So obviously when they talk about the movie, they say this is an amalgam of Ray and Sylvia. But also in the end of the movie, when they say, you know, this is what happened to Marsha P. Johnson, this is what happened to Bob Kohler, Mm. so forth. If Ray was Sylvia Rivera, Sylvia Rivera is the second main character of that movie, then they should have it. This is what happened to Sylvia Rivera. But they don't. 
Yeah. And I mean, I would also say that, you know, Ray is presented, whilst he's presented as someone who is somewhat fluid in gender, mm. is, I would say, not presented as a trans woman or as a trans person. The fact that this character is called Ray and the fact that the only thing they seem to have taken from Ray Castro is the name Ray. The name Ray. Mm. Seems like a decision where the only purpose seems to be to take away Sylvia's identity Mm. rather than necessarily to serve any kind of dramatic purpose or serve any kind of storytelling purpose. I don't know how much of this is conscious and how much of this is me being mad at this film and, you know, putting thoughts in them that they may not have had. But the thing that I thought about their decision to include Ray but not label him as Sylvia Rivera is the fact that if you had a where are they now section on Sylvia Rivera, as well as saying, you know, Sylvia Rivera founded Star and was important in trans activism and so forth, well, firstly, you'd have to acknowledge that this character is trans or Sylvia Rivera didn't use that word, but associated with that community. But also you'd have to acknowledge that Sylvia Rivera spent her whole life fighting against the erasure of trans people of colour from queer history and stories of Stonewall and the queer movement. And if you didn't mention that and you just put Sylvia Rivera up there, it would be still very obvious that you were making a film about a person in which you did everything that person hated most. Mm. I don't know if that was specifically why they decided not to include Sylvia mm. as a named character. I mean, let's say it's why. <laughs> I believe it was why. Like, I was struggling to think of another reason, frankly. Um, it definitely erases the complexity of gender identity, both generally and within that time. They're clearly not willing to try and have literally any nuance at any point ever in this film. But, like, specifically, they do just kind of, like, depict a group of people who were clearly sound male at birth, but who are feminine in some way. And like, they're just sort of unwilling to try and have the really complicated and difficult discussion of like how these people identified and how can we know? And how does that compare to now in a way that serves no one except their own laziness? Mm. Yeah. Um, I saw a lot of people, both when this film came out and now, and I was just kind of like Googling it being like, why would they call these people who are obviously trans women queens? that's so messed up, they're erasing them and so forth. And, like, obviously that was language that was used at the time by people who we would now understand to be trans women as well Mm. as some people who we would not understand to be trans women. They're trying to manage this sort of tension between, like, the way that queer identities functioned at the time and the way queer identities functioned now, and they're not really presenting either of them. They're just kind of, like, Mm. putting a bunch of images on stage that Mm. you can – well, on – screen that you can either read through the lens of what we understand like a trans woman's identity to be today or if you're a little bit more aware of the time you can read through the lens of the time and I think that is a really difficult thing for a film to Mm. get across unless it wants to spend a lot of time on it and once you've put a definitely cisgender protagonist in there you have to spend some time on this like night class he has to take to get into Columbia I suppose (laughs) um so yeah, it just it's just completely unwilling to do that work and it serves no one. Not Sylvia, not the theatre going public who might want to mm. learn something about queer identity at the time. No one. Yeah. It yeah. Bad. It's a bad movie. I think the thing Why that- was Danny in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the thing that frustrated me most is that they had done the research. Mm. Like as I was mentioning with the Street Queens or with Ray. Mm. 
or with Danny's life. There are so many little details in there. Yeah. And I was really torn in watching this between being delighted by little details that I recognized from you telling me about Stonewall, like Mm. the drape dress showing up. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, And then being really frustrated that like, well, clearly you've spent a lot of time on this and what you're choosing to take Mm. from it is like a cute little shot of the fact that they washed glasses out in a bucket behind the bar at Stonewall not on anything that actually seems to be important you know yeah. it's just like window dressing mm. of historical trappings so that was frustrating yeah so it does mean that their inaccuracies are a conscious decision is I guess the point that I'm getting at their inaccuracies or their lack of depth is not because the information wasn't out there they had the information and they knew the information they just didn't decide to use it as we want them to. So I haven't talked a lot about how the film depicts the people and the history surrounding Stonewall. Let's talk a little bit about the Drunk History. So the Drunk History episode is obviously much shorter than the film and doesn't have time for much except the riots themselves. What it does do before getting into the riots is set up the character of Marshall P. Johnson. And unlike in the film where we've just discussed how they don't really bring in trans people or transgender identity, Identity or gender identity as a thing, Drunk History does explicitly identify Marsha P. Johnson as a trans woman. She is played by a trans actress, as is Sylvia Rivera in the Drunk History episode. Yay. Yeah, yeah. I know this is completely irrelevant, but the outfit Tracel said wears and this is great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a purple like jumpsuit thing, and I'm just like, yeah. Mm, it's very, very, top. very accurate to Sylvia Rivera. Oh, cool, great. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I love that they're like, we're going to be historically accurate to Sylvia Rivera's sartorial choices in this seven minute segment. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, she did love jumpsuits. So, yeah, so there was a much greater focus on trans representation in the drunk history segment as compared with the film. Yeah. Yeah, in both casting and in explicitly referring to Marsha as trans and, as I mentioned, in mentioning where trans activism went out of Stonewall rather than, as the movie did, focusing on gay activism. Which, when I say gay activism, I don't mean exclusively men who are attracted to men, but I mean gay activism in that was what the movement was called at the time and it did largely focus on men who were attracted to men. Yeah. So I'm much happier with Drunk History in this regard than I am with the Stonewall movie. Yeah, certainly, and we've spoken already about how the Drunk History segment credits Marsha and the shot glass into a mirror for inciting the Stonewall riots. Mm. And we're pretty sure that that's not how the riots started. But aside from that, I felt like it was okay. I mean, it's seven minutes long, so it's harder to mess stuff up when you're seven minutes long. So yeah, in that regard, Drunk History is not a historically accurate depiction of what happened to the Stonewall riots. Mm -hmm. Neither is Roland Emmerich's film, in very different ways. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that I found interesting in The Difference is that we know, as we mentioned, that Roland Emmerich and his crew, team, whatever, did do a lot of research and consciously decided to include this fictional character of Danny and to have Danny start the Stonewall riots. Drunk History believes it is historically accurate. (laughs) So Derek Waters, who is the creator of Drunk History, says that the show is 92% accurate, the show in general, not this Mm -hmm. specific segment, Mm -hmm. and that he specifically focuses on people even when they're drunk getting names and dates right, Mm -hmm. and that they do have a research team which does the research, writes up a summary, includes additional reading and additional documentaries and so forth, sends that to the narrator, in this case, Crystal West, to read up on and prepare for the episode. So as far as I'm aware from reading what Derek Waters has said, he believes this to be historically accurate. There's nothing to suggest that they make decisions about how to depict history in ways that they feel are more Mm. 
productive for modern society for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It seems that they do try to, and in this instance they failed, and believe they are succeeding, try to depict accurate history. Okay. My question is, how can that be? <laughs> because it's very, very easy to, as soon as you start reading Stonewall, to come across the fact that there's a huge... Mm debate about exactly what happened. It's very easy to find discussion about that. You know, like, obviously getting to the real truth of who actually did it is not impossible. But, like, as soon as you see one article, it's like, uh, Marsha P. Johnson actually started Stonewall. There's 50,000 ones that are, like, recommended under it. It's like, no, she didn't. You know, I, I just don't understand, like, what kind of research could you have done yeah, to I, end up with that? That's a good, that confuses me, too, because, like, regarding their research, I read Derek Waters saying we send them a three-page summary and we send them additional books and documentaries. The book on Stonewall, mm. which is called Stonewall by David Carter, does not tell this story about Marsha. If you mm. read one book on Stonewall, that's the book you read. Yeah. And it's not in there? Yeah. I am interested to hear that Derek Waters thinks the show is 92% accurate. I have not watched a huge amount of Drunk History. I know, Eli, you've watched a lot more than I have. But I would have never gotten the impression from this show that it was 92% accurate, frankly. It's two people sitting around with one of them drunkenly recounting something. It more feels like a kind of jumping off point that you would be like, oh, okay, that's a really interesting event that I hadn't thought much about. I think that the like hypothetical strength of Drunk History mm. is in a allegedly having a pretty decent amount of research and like a pretty strong foundation of history that they're then like obviously slightly kind of falsifying via comedic effect and obviously Mm. like in a seven minute segment you can't really examine nuance and so forth while still packaging it in this product that deliberately undermines its own Mm. authority in order to encourage the audience to become, you know, no longer like a passive consumer of history the way that people often do with things like Stonewall, the movie, Mm -hmm. or like with, you know, historical movies or documentaries, in encouraging its viewers to to be really critical and actively engaged and so forth. I think that no one Mm. watches Drunk History and assumes it's accurate. You know, there's like a lot of articles out there where someone being like, we fact-checked this week's Drunk History. Mm. So obviously that's content that people want. Derek Waters' goal is basically like he says what you basically said he wants people to not feel like they're going in learning history he wants people to go in for a laugh basically and then out of that they do get Mm. a historically accurate piece of history that's not packaged in that way so it feels more approachable and they can engage with it better and so forth but as you said that falls apart if your research isn't well done yeah it would be interesting to take like a representative sample of like four other random drug history (laughs) segments and fact check them obviously we have not bothered to do (laughs) because I think that like of the kind of things that they cover a lot of them aren't you know there is like they're the big stories that people hear that are fairly non-contentious mm. and so forth like this is a, an incredibly tricky event to recount with any kind of accuracy and so forth so like i would buy that this is just like an outlier in terms of how good their content is <laughs> i would buy that too and i was tempted to go and watch the other of their episodes on topics that i knew about well but like i didn't get time before this yeah i mean i think i think the only other one of their episodes i've watched is the hamilton one. Oh yeah yeah and i i definitely think that gap between what they're intending to do, how they're intending for the audience to perceive it, and then what they actually achieved with this particular episode. I think there's a bit of disparity there Mm. between all three of those things. Yeah, certainly, you know, in terms of which of these two pieces of media is better in terms of encouraging people to go do further reading, (laughs) this is obviously doing a much better job of that than the Stonewall film, which, I mean, as with any historical film, you know, very much markets itself as like, the untold story and like <laughs> telling the true story behind 
the queer rights movement. It does use the phrase unsung heroes a lot for a film. Which uh, deliberately does not sing the heroes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sylvia Rivera is arguably an unsung hero of the early queer rights movement, and yet. And yet. You know what I thought was wild about the film? Was that these riots went for several nights, and it mm. just like stops after the first night. Yeah. I thought that was a super bizarre choice. Mm. My pet theory is that every problem in this movie could be fixed if we took out Danny and I guess Roland Emmerich. Because I feel like it kind of lost its way in deciding whether or not it was a film about the Stonewall riots that just had this kind of like flavorless protagonist that was there only to show the Stonewall riots. Or if it was a film in which Danny was the protagonist in which the Stonewall riots kind of coincidentally happened. Yep. Mm. It's so bizarre to me that you will show the first night of one of the most like iconic influential events of the 20th century for the gay rights movement and then cut away to that for him to go back to his stupid little hometown and speak to his stupid boyfriend who I don't care about and like see his sister in a swing or something. It was so not compelling. It was bad. Also, just while I'm listing missed grievances, I thought it was so ridiculous how Ray, after that first night of the riots, was like, but I can get a job now. The riots aren't done yet. I know we like like to draw this really like straight line between like Stonewall and then the gay rights were here but it's just it was just it made me laugh out loud to be like oh but we've had one night of rioting so obviously like I can just get a respectable <laughs> job now like it's over mm-hmm. gay rights have arrived I have a couple of things to say about that line okay firstly if we're taking as I am that Ray is Sylvia Rivera Sylvia Rivera had a job at the time um what was Sylvia Rivera's job at the time she was working in like accounts in some kind of warehouse Okay. Yeah, she had a job. Secondly, the way it's depicted of raving like, I can get a job now, is pretty much how the people involved with the film talk about it. So there's a quote from Roland Emmerich that I have written down here, which paints it not as coming from the Stonewall Rise, but as coming from Danny himself. But we can unpack that, which is they learned something from Danny. So he's talking about the street queens. Mm-hmm. That you can make it, that you can study, you can maybe have a more regular life. Ooh. I also don't have the feeling at the end that they are so much on the streets anymore. Sylvia Rivera spent her life on the streets, and she's pretty emblematic of the experience of street queens. It's just there's this false idea that everything was fine for every queer person now, that this film continues to perpetuate. Also, the film provides no mechanical solution <laughs> for how these people get off the street. Mm. So that's questionable. I think we're now really getting into the meat of... Why we hate Roland Emmerich? Why? they are choosing to tell these stories in this way. Mm. So I think we've talked a little bit about that with regards to the drunk history segment already. Yeah. But we haven't really talked about that in the context of Roland Emmerich's film yet. So I just want to talk a little bit about Roland Emmerich and the sort of background in which this film was made. I'm going to preface this by saying that I don't agree with his choices and to the extent that it's about to sound like I'm defending him, I am not. You're just explaining his choices. I am setting us up to trash him more. So Roland Emmerich has been an out gay director for quite a while in Hollywood. And he's also someone who has several kind of consistent themes within his films. In particular, he's a big fan of two cinematic tropes, I guess. The first being what we've already spoken about, the naive audience surrogate who comes into a marginalized or different community and is exposed to their lifestyle, exposed to the way they're treated and learns something and Mm -hmm. comes away from that experience with a deeper understanding. I'm not necessarily saying that that's what this film achieves. I'm saying this is what it was clearly trying to achieve. Okay, it I'll, sure was doing that. Yeah. I will hold my tongue for the time being. The second part of this is the idea of coming together as a community and rejecting individualism. 
this is something that's very apparent in the film where several characters, Danny does this, Ray does this as well. Nothing says coming together as a community, like pissing off and leaving your friends on the street to go to college. <laughs> yeah, as I said, don't think the film succeeds at this, but there certainly are moments in the film where both Danny and Ray reject the idea of engaging with political action because they feel like it is too much and they don't want to deal with that because they want to focus on their individual lives. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's apparent in films like 2012. That's something that's apparent in films like Day After Tomorrow, like the kind of big budget disaster films that Roland Emmerich kind of made his name with. I was so confused how Roland Emmerich made all those movies. Didn't he do Independence Day too? And Independence Day is and- another film like that. All three of these films have very similar themes in that respect of <laughs> individuals then coming together as a community. The other aspect of Roland Emmerich's filmmaking that I feel is important to contextualize with relation to this film is that the fictionalization of history in a problematic way involving like semi-fictional characters and amalgams and historical stand-ins is not a new thing for him. His previous film in the lead up to making this film was Anonymous. I don't know anything about Anonymous, but fill me in. This was the uh, Shakespeare film. Oh. Oh no. Yes. This is the Shakespeare film that buys into the Oxfordian theory of Shakespeare scholarship, whereby a... Shakespeare too poor to write Shakespeare? Yeah. Another healthy where, dose of classism in my history? Yeah, whereby it must have been a rich noble who wrote Shakespeare's plays, not a poor person. So, yeah. This isn't his first so rodeo. So we should have seen this coming, and he could have been stopped. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, and I think that those pieces of context inform the film very clearly. The film as a call to action for the broader community is the clear impetus for having Danny be Danny, for having him be this kind of generic white bread. um, So white. So white. Um, So bread. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really know what I meant by that. (laughs) Yeah, this generic white bread young man who is explicitly handed the brick. So it's a kind of... That's a call to action. That's a you, as the audience, need to do something. (laughs) The black trans people have given you the brick. I actually, like, blinked or something when he got handed the brick, and the way I saw the movie, it was like a brick just appeared in his hand. (laughs) Wildly confused. I just believed at that point that that was a choice the filmmakers would make. He was like, oh man, I am holding a brick. Like, I think when people talk about the film, and I guess specifically when the people involved in the film talk about the film, they do play up the importance of that moment where he's handed the brick by Queen Kong. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it is literally a blink and you'll miss it moment. Like, it's yeah. not a big thing in the movie. You don't realize what happened much. It's just Danny's got a brick now. That's the key point when you watch the movie. And yeah. you did that brick so hard and changed history. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I do think that, and this is something that came up in a review that I read, that the fact that he throws the brick was actually maybe less of a problem than the follow-up, where he is the one who then, like, shouts gay rights and is suddenly a super confident activist, even mm-hmm. though literally in the lead-up to that scene and in pretty much every other moment before that moment he's very unsure of himself and even in the moment he's unsure of what to do before he's handed the brick. I read one reviewer that was talking about how maybe if he'd been handed the brick, he threw the brick and then was still uncertain and then someone else had been like gay rights Mm. and shouted out and really kind of jump-started the crowd that might have been a more logical articulation of that kind of audience surrogate being very unsure of themselves and being pushed Mm. into action. Mm. So that's sort of getting into where it may have been slightly better. The other thing is just in terms of the aesthetic of the film, that it's very clearly trying to articulate this kind of move from that middle America, you Mm. know, cornfields, everything is yellow for whatever reason. 
Um, Tiny's bedroom is so yellow. So, <laughs> so very yellow. To the kind of city and this more metropolitan environment and this more modern environment that more reflects the kind of colours, both in terms of literal colours and also in terms of the racial diversity of a more modern America. Yeah, I was reading one review that was talking about how it's very kind of Norman Rockwell paintings, like huh. all of Danny's hometown scenes in Indiana. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, I care. And then I looked up and I was like, mm, Norman Rockwell didn't just use yellow, though, whereas this film just uses yellow. Yeah. <laughs> It's like they sent, like, five interns to go buy some yellow knickknack from the local antique store, and, like, they all went out and came back, and they were like, I guess we spent the budget on this now, and then they shoved it into every nook and cranny of his house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I have a couple of things to mention coming off what you just said. Mm -hmm. So regarding the thing where Danny's kind of unsure of himself as an activist, for want of a better word, though I don't think he's done any activism, and then kind of comes into that when he throws the brick and he's suddenly quite confident, whereas previously he's been rejecting that. I think what the film was trying to depict is that rejection of the Mattachin style of activism, which we do see him arguing about the respectability Mm -hmm. politics, the, you know, you have to wear a suit, that's the only way they'll respect you. And the embracing of this more direct, violent rebellion. So, you know, you see him rejecting it and then suddenly embracing it enthusiastically when he's handed the brick. But I don't think it managed to express that because I don't think it made clear, and you brought this up before, how the Stonewall riots were a productive piece of activism as well as just being a riot. And without the explanation of how the Stonewall riots brought in a new age of queer activism and changed the queer movement in that way, it's really unclear why this is a better approach than the approach Madison was taking, why this is important, or how it's going to change anything. That just never comes up in the film. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's like something that I really got a very heavy vibe from with this film's positioning of Danny was that it positions Danny in the way that most history textbooks that you read in school position Rosa Parks in relation to the civil rights movement mm. as a kind of, you know, innocent bystander who mm. is drawn in by like their presence at a particular moment. Yeah. When in reality, Rosa Parks was an established activist for over a decade before the incident on the bus. Yeah. And the incident on the bus was like, was orchestrated as part of a sustained campaign Mm. in the same way A, this wasn't the first time as you established in your episode this wasn't the first kind of riot this wasn't the first incidence of activism Mm. within the queer community and it certainly wasn't spontaneously generated by a naive young man with a brick Mm. (laughs) they do a little bit of work to establish in the first raid and then when the second raid happens like so soon after that there was a bit of resentment that was starting to bubble over yeah But it honestly felt like that was a scene from a much more interesting film (laughs) that could have used a bit more expansion. And like, you know, for example, the butch lesbian character who... Oh, we haven't even talked about the butch lesbian character. (laughs) Um, The butch lesbian character who gets arrested and how she's talking about how she has a family and a job. She can't afford to be arrested and can't afford to have her identity Mm, like that. Yeah. It is interesting to me that they chose, instead of having an accessible character like, for example, that person who could have been the audience point of view character, i.e. someone who is living in a conventional Mm. living arrangement, Mm. but is involved with the queer community as well. Yeah. That is one way of doing that. There were several different ways they could have gone about having a protagonist who was involved with Mm. the queer community, but still needed some kind of guidance or still had some life outside of that that could be contrasted, because that's clearly what they're trying to do, very Mm. blatantly (laughs) with the color palette, and yet they decided to just have this, like white bread country boy yeah instead which is a very tired choice it's very clear that this was a passion project for all 
Colin Emmerich. He's been trying mm. to make this movie for 20 years, I think it was, by the time it actually got made. And honestly, I think this would have been a great movie for 1995. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 20 years ago. Yeah, but we've moved on since then. Yeah. We have higher expectations. And I don't think Roland Emmerich has necessarily updated his thinking about the queer community and about how queer identity should be depicted on screen. Yeah. Years. I didn't know he'd been trying to make it for 20 years, and that kind of explains a lot, because if this is the idea he had 20 years ago, it's a great idea 20 years ago. The long gestation period of the production does explain why there's a lot in this film, but some of it kind of doesn't really go anywhere. Oh, yeah. You've mentioned the the one scene we get of Danny going to night school, which is an arc that doesn't really proceed. It ends immediately point. at the end of that scene. Yeah, <laughs> and the hints at the kind of organized crime plot line, and we get that one scene with Marsha and Ed Murphy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was honestly, and I think we agreed that like that scene was delightful, but like so bizarre. That's real. It wasn't Marsha, but that's really how Ed Murphy says he got out of his handcuffs. Really, by going to a kink club. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So this is another instance where they've done a bunch of research and decided to pick one little aesthetic thing rather than focus on like actual <laughs> complex questions. Yes, yeah, he was handcuffed to our Frankie, who was the bouncer, who has a very brief cameo in the movie. And yeah, they went to a kink club to get the handcuffs off. That's hilarious. But Marsha's here now. <laughs> Marsha, yeah. I, yeah, the fact that, that was Marsha was weird because like she didn't really do much in that role. She was just kind of she there, did nothing in this and... film, which I think is kind of one of the things that made me think that a lot of these people weren't historical because I feel like they treated the mm. people that I did recognize very much as like cameos mm. yeah, like Marsha P. Johnson yeah. Frank Kameny mm. um so it's weird then to learn that like Annie and yeah. Paul and those people are real when yeah. you have these like famous cameos that go nowhere. So I guess having talked a bit about what stories these two pieces of media told and why they were telling them like they did, I guess the last thing to talk about is kind of what message we think that they send and how these two stories made us feel. Well, it's a lot easier for me to summarize my feelings on the movie, which is that it's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you'd gather that Alice doesn't like this mm. film until now, humble listener, but she doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I guess I feel like we've made our feelings on them pretty clear and the inaccuracies of both of them have been discussed at some length, mm. although they could be discussed at some more length. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, there's many things we um, haven't said. I think the question is, given that both of these films are inaccurate, is it more acceptable to be inaccurate in certain ways? And is a certain level of inaccuracy acceptable at all? I think that a certain level of inaccuracy is inevitable in making a fictionalization of something like this. So for for example, the thing where, like, Danny is... Ignoring the fact that Danny's in this movie. The thing where Danny is... I try. <laughs> the thing where Danny is an amalgam of the experiences of a bunch of young white queer men in New York at that time, I think that's a fine kind of thing to do in a movie where you kind of pull on the experiences of a diverse group of people with, you know, something in common, in this case, you know, race and sexual orientation and gender, and put them on one representative character. I think that's okay. I think films have to do that. But in the context of Stonewall, my concern is not the level of inaccuracy that I think is acceptable of amalgamating those stories, but then choosing to insert a figure who did not play that role or who is not representative of the people who played that role into the story. And I think that's why I'm happier with Drunk History, although it's still inaccurate, in telling Marsha's biography, while it is pretty accurate in her life story and it doesn't kind of put experiences on her that may have been had by a broader group of people like her at the time, it does kind of use Marsha as a stand-in for trans people who were involved in Stonewall in 
In the same way that Roland Emmerich uses Danny as a stand-in for white men who were involved in Stonewall. It's just that I think that while white men did play a role in Stonewall, people like Danny are not key figures in the role that they played in the Stonewall riots. And I also think that whereas highlighting the role of trans people, trans women, trans people of colour, all those groups that Marsha falls into in the Stonewall riots is very important because they've been erased from that history and still struggling and facing a lot of oppression as a group more broadly. That's important. Highlighting the role of gay cis white men is not. Yeah, and I mean, very clearly, Roland Emmerich had a bias towards including that in his storytelling. So there are Mm. a couple of quotes from him in this regard. Firstly, one where he talks about, you know, well, I feel like all filmmakers insert themselves into films and I'm a white gay man, so that's what I chose to include. Mm. But more controversially, there's also the quote from him where he claims falsely that Stonewall was a white event. And I believe he follows that up by saying some people don't like to acknowledge that, but Mm. it's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is wrong and bad and, yeah, I feel is representative of the way in which I think there's a movie that you could make here that is very similar to this movie that is much, much better and, in particular, carries more historical accuracy in its feeling and in its message in comparison to this film, mm. where you, instead of centering a cis white gay man's narrative, you center a different person. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that a good depiction of Stonewall can be made where you center one person. Yeah. Like, I just like both of these films try and make a protagonist. Mm. And obviously it's easy to be light on drunk history when they've gone with like a real person as opposed to some like random fictional white boy. A lot of the conversations about Stonewall try and claim that one person did it, Mm. one person didn't do it. I don't think we can ever get a good film out of this where we persist in trying to make that narrative. And if that means that we have to get some kind of like super meta weird film out of it where we acknowledge conflicting events or if it means that we can only ever do documentaries (laughs) that not just fiction about this like, yeah, fine. I I think that yeah, Mm. like, you know, kind of like glossing over some things and losing some nuance in depicting a fictional event is fine. I don't Mm -hmm. think broadly completely changing historical truth is ever okay even when there's degrees of that and one degree is fictional white boy from not Kansas Mm. and one is this trans woman we would have really liked to have that one simple moment where Marsha's shot glass is heard around the world but it wasn't Mm. yeah yeah that's interesting and I feel that we're going to continue to have historical biopics and fictionalized histories and I do think that a move away from fictionalized histories that center on a single figure as being responsible for an entire movement Mm. would be Mm. a good thing. And I think a move towards a more ensemble arrangement, even if it's still somewhat fictionalized, would at least Mm. be more cohesive and a step in the right direction. Mm. Um, And certainly would help in terms of trying to tell a story like this um, that is so complex and does have those kind of conflicting narratives. And yeah, as I think you were saying earlier, Eli, both the pieces of media engage in that kind of singular hero narrative Mm. or singular inciting figure narrative. And yeah, I I think it's a reasonable point to make that that may just be an inherently problematic Mm. way of approaching retelling of a historical event. Certainly of this historical event. Yeah, not all historical events, but something like Stonewall, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, in particular, I feel this happens a lot with sort of protest movements and social movements, Mm. right? That they tend to be pinned on one person or Mm. a couple of people. You can't have a protest movement with only a couple of people. (laughs) That's not how it works. Yeah. 
So I think that about wraps up all we wanted to say about these two pieces of media. Obviously, there's a lot more we could go into, particularly with regards to the film. Alice had a lot more points about historical accuracies and the lack thereof. For example, we could have talked a lot more about the presentation of the Madison Society. I know that and Alice could probably speak more to this, but I know that Carter, when he was interviewed about this film, was definitely very unhappy with the way they were presented. Oh, interesting. Um, that doesn't surprise me, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, in particular, the ways in which the film presents quite a large dichotomy between mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the queer activist movement and the respectability politics of the Madison Society mm-hmm. in a way that for specific people in the film was not necessarily reflective of how they acted. But yes, due to the limitations of time and our format, we can't discuss absolutely everything but we hope this has been an enlightening discussion and comparison of these two pieces of media with that we've been queer as fiction i'm jason i'm eli i'm alice we can be found as queer as fact on twitter tumblr and facebook and if you would like to get in touch with us via email with suggestions or comments you can email us at queerasfact at gmail.com our podcast can be found on itunes spotify and any other podcasting platform that you use we really appreciate it when people leave us reviews on those platforms because it enables us to reach a wider audience we'll be back on the first with our next queer as fact episode which will be on 17th century monarch christina of sweden chosen by our patreons yes and if you do want to support this podcast because you enjoy our content a lot uh you can find us on patreon as of the last month yeah so there one of the rewards as we've alluded to is you literally just turning us into your puppets where we talk about whatever you want for like five dollars a month (laughs) so that's a bargain to clarify you get to vote on one of several options for an episode topic yeah this will happen three times per season yeah and yeah the first of those is coming out on the first with our episode on christina sure is another way you can support our podcast is by going to our redbubble store and purchasing merchandise with our logo on it it looks really cool so if you are interested in a one-off purchase of some queer as fact merchandise please go to our redbubble store where we can be found as queer as fact queer as fiction We'll be back on the 1st of August, where Eli and I will be discussing the ancient Mesopotamian poem, The Epic of Gilgamesh. We sure will for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) I am so intrigued. We like to keep you on your toes here. I know nothing about this. (laughs) Soon you'll know like four things about this. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.